Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right. I thought I'd start off my first podcast with a little story that involves my first guest today. Um, I believe it was 1999, uh, possibly the end of 1999. Um, we're in the middle of production of a little show called Action that uh, Doug Herzog uh, greenlit while he was at Fox. And uh, as the story goes... Uh, he had two calls he had to make that day. He had to make a call to Chris Carter to cancel his uh, science fiction series. And he had to make a call to Jay and I to cancel action. Because the ratings at the time were getting about 8 million people. And back then, 8 million people was not very uh, not very good. So I get the call, I connect Jay on the call, I don't know what's going to happen on the call, and Doug says, listen, I'm sorry to tell you guys, listen, I I have to cancel the show action. Jay Moore goes ballistic on the phone. He's like, Doug, come on, man, you got us on Thursday night after this cartoon family guy that you put on, what are you doing, putting on family guy on Thursday night, and we have to follow that? We're a live action show, why don't you put us on on Tuesday nights? After that 70s show, and Doug replied, Jay, Jay, I can't do that. That 70s show, that's, that's a family show. I can't do that. It's a family show. Jay's like, what the fuck are you talking about a family show? Uh, the other night, I saw, I saw the whole group of people around the kitchen table eating hash pot brownies. And Doug yelled back into the phone, yes, Jay, but they were doing it as a family. 
here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. My first guest, I'm honored of my first podcast industry standard, uh, is a guy who I met when he was in charge of uh, uh, MTV, I think it was in the, probably around 1984, uh, probably three years after they started. Uh, he's gone on to uh, do so many amazing things. He's uh, He ran those networks for years. He also went on to... Uh, start and run Comedy Central, not started, but he was really involved in some of the first programming that really went strong there, including The Daily Show with South Park, uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Colbert. Uh, he went on then to uh, take a job at Fox, where he uh, was very involved with Malcolm in the Middle and the show Action that I talked about. Then he went on to do uh, USA, where he was president of USA and uh, was involved in Monk and uh, several other series there. And then he went back to uh, Viacom, where he's uh, head of uh, the entertainment group there in charge of Comedy Central and TV Land and Spike and several other things. So uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce Emerson Grad. And uh, my friend in the business, Doug Herzog. Thanks for doing this, Doug. I am honored to be here, Barry. Uh, Although this is this is proof that every day, or that, uh, this is proof that someday everyone will have their own podcast. <laughs> you're, you're living proof, but I know I'm really honored to be here. This is exciting. My first podcast. Well, I I just I I wanted you to do this. I I thought that you'd be really inspirational to a lot of people who are in our business, but also people that are not in our business because. I find that through doing these things that people email me from all over the world and the things we say, they apply to everything. So I have so many things I want to talk to you about. But I, have, I wanted to uh, just interject. Now, I hope you use your action story because I'm going to do a call back here. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good story and that's true, but it's not my favorite action story. I know we're going to get to a lot of action, but if you want to tell the action story. There are a lot of action stories, but my favorite action story is when we were trying to convince Jay to do it. Which he was, it's an he, it's an amazing story. He, he 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 was really he didn't want to do it. He had a lot of things going in the movie business. He had a he had some momentum going, and he sits down with Joel <laughs> Silver, right? And he had just he had done Go and some other kind of indie kind of thing. I want to I want to interject here. So the whole lot. So so we I try to get him to the meeting. He finally agrees to go to the meeting, and it's a meeting at Joel Silver's office uh, on the um, I think it was the Paramount lot or some I can't remember the lot now. I'm sorry, but. And we go there, and it's just him and um, Chris Thompson, the executive producer and creator of the show. Now, this is what something that you may not know. So we get to the meeting, and um, it's incredible because Joel Silver's office is literally like it's it's un it's like a museum. There's posters everywhere. Everything. He's the guy, and he's he's the producer in movies at this time. At this time, the producer in movies, and the main character of action is modeled obviously after Joel Silver. So we, you know, we get in this office and 
immediately, uh, I don't know how much you know about this or not, but uh, Joel starts pacing. He doesn't even sit down. He just starts pacing back and forth. And he says, listen, I, 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 I can't believe you don't want to do this. Let me show you something. And uh, he takes all the lights down, and there's this huge old... Uh, flat screen TV, the ones that were a foot back, but they were like, you know, the biggest ones, new ones at the right. time. And he has these speakers, he turns everything up, and all of a sudden, the trailer for The Matrix starts playing. This is, nobody's ever seen the trailer for The Matrix. He's got the trailer for The Matrix, and the place is shaking, the blinds are shaking, the sound system, he had memorabilia was shaking, I was shaking. <laughs> And uh, he finishes that, and then he goes into his pitch for Jay. Why don't you tell me what you he remember? Says, he says, Jay, what are you doing, right? Like, and Jay says, I'm really, uh, this movie thing is going pretty well. He goes, well, what kind of movies? And he says, go, and there was a couple other movies he'd made. Picture Perfect, Jerry Maguire. And he goes, what are you, fucking Parker Post? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. He's offering you a starring role to a TV show. You want to do these indie films? Anyhow, we got we got Jay to do it, and uh, and he did a great job. And you know, action remains uh, a much beloved cult item to this day. It is. It just uh, I just ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time, and uh, and you you. It's like I, I was talking to uh, Bob Greenblatt the other day about the show Awake that he did, uh, and which was just such an incredible show. And and I you know I had dinner with him, and he said I said how could you canceled that. It was so innovative and so special. And he said, Barry, some things are ahead of their time and some things are just meant for cable. Yeah. Well, you know, action, it's particularly Jay's character, which was sort of, you know, we, we now live in the era of these anti-hero sort of not so great guy heroes. And, you know, people just weren't doing that back then it, uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the end of the 90s. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I have since uh, seen them, I guess, on IFC, yeah, uh, and you know they hold up. They're really funny. Jay, Jay did a great job. Yeah, and I, I want I want to talk about this because, uh, and then we'll go back to another thing. We'll jump around, but so you're you get the job at Fox. Uh, tell us about that. Sometimes, uh, if you're like the new coach of the Celtics, you don't get an interview. You just get hired. Sometimes, like Brian Shaw, you have to go through an interview process. Did you Did you just get the call or what happened? I got a call from. Peter Chernin one day and I knew he I actually thought he was calling I was running Comedy Central this was 1998 I got a call from Peter Chernin and my instinct was I I'd known Peter you know a bit for a long time and uh would you know chat with him and we'd run into each other he actually he and Barry had tried to hire me one time before several years ago for something else at Fox not this Barry no Barry Barry, Barry Diller I'm sorry and uh, uh big show business guys it's all about the first name <laughs> So I actually thought he might be calling to offer me uh, an opportunity to run FX, which was just fledgling at that point. Yeah. And Comedy Central was kind of raging. And so I figured, oh, well, I'm sort of like, that'd be sort of an interesting choice. That, But that's not for me. I'm really having a great time at Comedy Central. So that's an easy no. Or I thought maybe he was calling to offer me the managerial job of the Los Angeles Dodgers, <laughs> uh, which would have been a dream job for me, who that Fox owned at the time. But he called to offer me the head of the Fox Broadcast Network, which was stunning and shocking to me, and not anything I had in my sights. I'd been a cable guy. So he offers it to you on the phone, and you got a guy. It's like it's li like literally a guy dropping to his knees and and opening up the box. And it's very hard to say no at the time, or you got to say yes at the time. But you're, you, you, you say you th you'll think about it. How my, you... my instinct was, I don't think so. 
which I should have stuck with because that was my original instinct, and and uh, those always are your best. I think you're. I'm going to disagree with you on that one. All right. I'll well, a- anyhow, so. I, and so then proceeded a period of a couple of weeks slash months where he was, you know, sort of trying to talk me into it. And then I, I finally said yes, which was like November. And I think this had started, you know, probably in late August or September or something. And I finally said yes uh, in November, started in January. But almost from the minute I said yes, there was something, you know, and this, you know, was my own issue uh, where I thought, I shouldn't have done that. This job isn't really for me. Now's not the time. And so I, I kind of went into it, I think, um, you know, with uh, not the best attitude. And uh, I was only I was there a short time, 14 months, you know, left left under my own steam because of a confluence of events, which was, you know, nice for me. Um, and, uh, you know, as I look back on it, it was, you know, it, it you know, a lot of great things came out of it, met a lot of interesting well, people, did a lot of interesting things, got to Los Angeles, which is where I've been living ever since. Uh, you know, Peter was, you know, in turn, uh, very supportive, but I never looked back, uh, after I left and said, I need to get back to network. I, what I, what, what it really made me realize is, you know, cable television was really the place. I needed to be in the place uh, I was comfortable in, in the place you know I've, I've had all my success in for the most part. Well, that's what I like to say a lot of times is that you know people always say I shouldn't have done that because of what bad happened, but you know without that bad that happened, you wouldn't have met these people, you wouldn't have come to L.A. It was a that's dry, all it was that's a all driving force, so it was all great. I, I, I think the thing I really feel is if I had to do it again, I would have done it a little differently. I don't know that I would have liked it anymore. I don't know that I would have been any more successful. I don't know that I would have lasted any longer. But, you know, you got to come into those jobs. You better come into a job like that knowing you want it and you, you want it bad and you want to win because it's fastballs of the chin all day and, you know, there's only one way to play that game. And so in, in that regard, I, was, I wasn't quite prepared. I had spent zero time in network television before that. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I always say that, you know, there's three kinds of people. There's the ones that tread water, there's the, you know, the people who are sharks, and then there's the really good swimmers. And I always thought of you as a really, really good swimmer. Well, well I, I, I appreciate that. I, some, some, some of that I forgot when I got there. I regressed a little bit. But uh, take, but take us through because this is important because I think the, the the listeners and viewers are uh, would love to know when you're um, working on cable television, there's not the process like there is a network in terms of uh, green lighting shows and network television. Um, 
basically there's a pilot season then you have the these weekends or whatever these groups of times with all of your executives where you're reviewing all the material and then you got to fight for the kind of shows that you want on the air so i think getting back to action i think this is a very important uh, moment for you because uh, I, I heard a story about you at one of these meetings where they were deciding on action. That's that. And, um, and you were there with Peter Chernin, who was basically against putting it on the air, and a couple of other people. And rumor has it you stood up, you slammed your hand on the table, and what did you say? Well, you know, by that time, I had finally gotten a little more comfortable, and I, I sort of began to sort of feed on my energy of like, okay, I'm doing this. I could do this and I'm going to go for it. I, I, I worked my, I was having a lot of personal issues at the time, <laughs> but, uh, so it's, we're in that meeting. So we've had the pilot screenings. We're now deciding what to put on the air. And before you go, so take us through like, cause again, cable, you know, a cable could be some, you could be in a meeting with somebody and say, you know what? I love that idea. Let's put that on. Let's at least give that a shot for a special or something. In network, there's like this whole thing that you go through the screenings. Is it a situation where you screen them all first and then you put the ones you don't want in a pile and the ones you like in a pile and you go back and look at them again? By the way, I only did this once, Barry. (laughs) (laughs) And I was half unconscious when I did it. So, and it was a long time ago. But we screened them and then we, then you start moving things around on the board. And that happens for days. You know, Rupert comes in and he moves everything around. He takes the Simpsons off or cops off. Let's not do that anymore. And you know, then you wait till he leaves the room and you put him back on. And uh, now does somebody tell you to put them back on after he leaves? Or? Yeah, Peter. Peter goes, let him do whatever he wants. And then, you know. Um, so this is like, a, so this goes on for a couple of days before you go to New York. But then we were, so then it got to a smaller group and we were really in there talking about what we were going to actually green light and how and sort of a little more nuts and bolts cleared out a lot of the fringe people out of the room so just sort of like the really senior executives and peter said he didn't want to put action on and you know i sort of like made this stand for i was like well why'd you hire me you know if this you know you should just get some other guy you know a usual suspect type guy this is why you hired me to try and take chances and particularly in comedy and i think it's a really funny show i understand what you know uh, what some of the reservations are, but I think we should go for it, and this is why I'm here, and and in a pretty passionate way at the time, you know, uh, particularly talking to you know a big Hollywood mogul type boss, and he responded to that, and he's like, okay, I get it, that sounds right, yeah, you're right, let's let's go for it. Um, of course, he got to turn around and say, hey, it didn't work, but uh, <laughs> did did he do that? No, no, he's not that kind of guy. Yeah, so I mean, I think, but I think again, it's risk. You know, I always say, but like, he understood passion. Yeah, risk and passion professionally are what it's all about. Personally, risk is not always a good thing personally, but 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 professionally it's 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 great. So right. so that's great you did that and uh and then take me through the end because again, <laughs> just real briefly because I think it's important because and even though technically uh you were not fired. Right. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have been over time, but <laughs> you would have been over time. <laughs> You know that. Well, everybody, everybody is, so everybody why not is. me? But you're a guy who's rarely been fired. I've never been fired. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so the only thing close to being fired is then. This is the, clo- the closest. And so yes. that probably professionally was one of the lowest times in your life. Absolutely. So take me through how you so got here's back what, here's on what, your here's, feet. Oh, how I got back on my feet? Well, I actually spent, uh, I spent almost a 
entire calendar year not working. So I left Fox. It was uh, the it was March of two thousand. So that first internet connection uh, correction had just happened. Right, uh, all of a sudden a little bit of the bubble burst, but everybody was still pretty excited about the internet. Uh, I had people calling me up every day, going, "I got this site." I mean, every mogul in Hollywood, everyone, uh, you know, they're starting these sites and they want me to be the front man, and they're we're going to get rich and. I didn't know anything except that none of it made sense to me. I was like, how are we going to get rich again? We're just going to, Eddie Murphy's going to make a two-minute film and we're going to put it on the internet and he's gonna, we're not going to pay him anything and everybody's going to watch and okay. So I just didn't get it. I needed a break. I sort of needed to just take a breath. I was 41. I had worked from the day I left college till this point. So I felt like it was halftime for me. Like, let's just take a breather, you know? I felt like, Quote, traditional media was still going to be out there. I had a couple of traditional media job offers that came my way, like, right away. And I turned those down because I was coming off of Fox. I was like, well, that feels like cable television. That feels like a step backwards. Uh, and it took me a good part of the year, you know, then as the Internet thing began to shrivel up and go away. And there was a lot of uh, consolidation happening in the old media. I was like, i probably going to need a job at some point. And I, and I arrived back at, like, I want to be back in cable television. That's where I'm comfortable. That's where I think I should be. And that's where I want to be. And quite frankly, it was kind of lucky that the USA Network called because I was looking. I needed a job. And, now, that was uh, Barry again, right? That was Barry and Steve Chow at the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was a great opportunity because they were really struggling. And Now, they, w- they were struggling, but weren't they, like, one of the highest rated cable yes. networks in terms of viewers i think they were the top most watched cable network and remain to this time. day at that at the time but they well, were struggling well struggling in that uh, tnt was starting to overtake them and struggling in an original programming uh uh sort of category that they had sort of stepped away from original programming all their ratings came from uh movies uh you know uh big big box office theatricals and uh walker texas ranger walker and they really needed to get back into the originals game and establish themselves and sort of like you know move their cpms up because they were basically just selling reruns and everybody was sort of getting into the originals game and they had lagged behind so i was able to go in there with a great opportunity and uh, and and build a great team there's some great people there and got to bring in the amazing jeff wachtel and you know we uh we had a couple of singles then we hit it out of the park with monk yeah, tell me about Monk, how that, because that was a very unique show because it was one of the, in my mind, it was one of the first shows that was, it was like an hour show that was like dramedy. It was like, it was, it like, was Columbo, really, what, what it was. And uh, people don't, you know, when you say that, I'm glad you said that because I'm going to say something that's probably going to, you know, get me in a little trouble, but I think it's valid. I think in television, as a president of networks, you realize that there's ideas that come about that are like, extraordinarily unique and original and the formula is completely original and, and different and then there is ideas similar to monk which was like Columbo. i'm so glad you said that or 30 rock which essentially is the mary tyler moore show with tina fey as mary alec baldwin as lou grant Lou-Grant. and yeah, tracy right, morgan as right, yeah, ted knight that doesn't mean it's one of the most unbelievable it's one of the most unbelievable. i love the show but that does but the formula is a formula that's, that's been tried and true before did you realize that when you were greenlighting, hey, this is just Columbo, but with a different kind of thing here? A little bit. And it, you know, that actually, you know, 
that made me not so excited about it originally. That script had been about it. it was an ABC script. It had actually been at USA for a while. They couldn't quite figure so out ABC how to get it made. ABC. A woman named Jackie DeCrinis, who was a yeah. development executive there, had, I think, worked on it when she was at ABC. And then she got it and brought it over to USA. And they couldn't really get to first base. And somebody, it might have been Jackie, came up with the idea of getting Tony Shalhoub. And all of a sudden, that's when it – that started to make it interesting – and but we knew it was kind of old fashioned. It was it was very original, but you know, sort of traditional in the same way. And I'll never forget, you know, a few weeks before we put it on, the uh, FX put on the Shield, and we thought, oh my god, we're fucked. <laughs> Is this what the world wants? Right? The this you know the bad guy anti hero. They're going in a completely edgy like. And Monk was the complete opposite of that. We we're like. What are we gonna do? And we were we 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 just thought it was you know gonna be one and done, and whatever it was, you know, the audience responded to it immediately, and there was an audience out there for this show, and an audience that was eager to see you know this sort of closed-ended procedural you know sort of blue sky uh, with a you know with a twinkle of comedy and uh, and some really clever stuff and great acting, um, you know, by Tony Shalhoub and the rest of the cast, and it worked and it was it was great. It was a, it was a fun ride. And what's amazing is you're saying that again that it was something that you you're you know you're the president of the network and you're saying to your group honestly listen you know uh i'm going to take a risk here but we're you know we could be one and done yeah well you, you know, probably we... had more you probably had more hope and promise for action than you did for um well we had, we had uh we had put on i forget the name now uh a stephen king series with um uh, Anthony Michael Hall, the Dead Zone, the Dead Zone was came on first and did pretty well. It was doing so, great. so, so we we were like that felt like the that felt like where we should be to us at the time because Monk was you know a completely different flavor, uh, and then Monk just blew it all out of the water. You never know; nobody knows. That's no. the, that's the that, that's the fun. But you got to get out there and you know figure out ways to take chances. And you know, in Jackie DeCrinis and Jeff Wachtel, I had two development executives who were really passionate about it. Um, we're we're certain that it was good and going to be good or great, and um, and you know and and really push for the shot. So we took yeah, it. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. So I, I want you to just take me back, if you will. I, I want to go back to the MTV days because I think it's really important. And we'll come back here because you're starting at MTV at a time when the network was only like three years old. It was it was raging though. 1984. I got there. You know, the Victory Tour was, you know, uh, was still going on. It was the, you know, 1984 was the summer of Purple Rain, you know, the Jackson's Victory Tour, Bruce Springsteen's, you know, uh, Born in the USA. Video music was raging and MTV was the all powerful thing. So you get there in 84, out of 100% of all the programming on the network. How much are music videos and music? It's all music videos at this point. There's not one because you had on. I was brought. I was brought on. I was. I came on as the news director, so it was my job to build the MTV news department and and so Kurt Loader moved beyond moved beyond Mark Goodman reading items you know ripped out of Billboard magazine. So you brought in Kurt Loader. Well, that was much later. That was much later. Yeah, we got to that probably a couple years later. But uh, you know, so I first started doing the news stuff, and then uh, they brought us up one day to a conference room and said, you know. People are only watching for a couple minutes at a time. You know, sort of the novelty's worn off. And so if they don't see a video they like, they change the channel. So now we've got to have a reason for them not to change the channel. We need to do traditional television shows, half-hour shows, so that they stay around for the whole half hour. And Bob Pittman, who was running the channel at that point, said, okay, we're going to do a 
game show. Uh, we're going to do a dance show, and we're going to figure out how to do a weekly news show. And, and, and I like- was charged with those three things. Now, wasn't there a fourth thing, a reality show? No, that was later, too. So okay. the first three shows was Remote Control. Yeah, with, uh, with uh, Ken, Ken Ober and, and Colin, Colin Quinn. Quinn with Adam Sandler. And, and Leary. Leary. Yeah, and Roger, Roger, Roger Cabler. That's right. Yeah, all those guys. John Tenike. Uh, uh, so we did Remote Control, which was an immediate hit. We did Club MTV. Club MTV, yeah. And then we did um, we did The Week in Rock, which is when we brought in Kurt Loder. Yeah. So those are the, and then later on, uh, uh, the real world was about ninety two or so. Now, would you consider the real world at the time? Like, were there any other reality shows on television in ninety two? No, there was. This was you know before reality. When I'm the idiot, I'm the idiot. When we did the when we did the the first season of the Real World, you know, there were no expectations. These kids had no idea what you know the show was going to be like or what the reaction to the show was like or that they were going to become stars because they were guinea pigs, right? No one had done this before, not since the Loud family, right, in the 70s. So there were zero expectations. So I'm the idiot that said after the first season when these kids turned into like mini stars, I was like, well, we can't do this again because (laughs) now every group of kids that comes in is going to be so obnoxious and so self-conscious, it's going to be unwatchable. Except what what I didn't realize was they were so self-conscious and so obnoxious. That's exactly what makes it so watchable. <laughs> and people <laughs> continue to watch it to this day. I mean, I don't, they're in season, I don't know, 20-something. 20 20 yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And remote control. You're, you know, when you, when you look back on that and you, you know, let's just take Ken Ober, Sandler, Leary, Colin Quinn. Which one of those four, and Roger Cabler, which one of those four <laughs> did you think, five, did you think was going to be the biggest star you know, at the time? I, I was huge. That's, and that's the thing that sort of ignited my, you know, uh, you know, my interest in ultimately going to comedy. I loved working with comedians so much, and I had so much fun on that show. You know, it's hard to say. I will tell you, I remember we did a remote control tour. Well, the reason why I say this is because a lot of you listening don't know this, but Roger Cabler was one of the most impressions, unbelievable impression. I mean, the guy was just, it was insanity what he could do. And when he went on for an audience, when you're a stand-up comic, you know, you have monologists like Leary and Quinn and Sandler and Ken Ober. And you have this guy like Roger Cabler who's doing impressions of Robin Williams. People are going crazy. No, I mean, he was he was considered a get at the time. I know. He was getting standing ovations yeah. in, in the club that I ran. So at the time, who did you think? Well, well I was huge. I, I thought Kenny was brilliant. He, 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 You know, God rest his soul. Um, I always felt he never worked hard enough at his stand-up. But I, I thought he was brilliantly quick and funny. And he was a great guy. I thought Quinn was funny. It took me a little while to really appreciate Colin early on. He was, he, you know, he, he, you know, he grew into the role around him or he created that role that on the show, but you know, he was not a standard sidekick, but brilliant. And, and I watched him develop over the years. Uh, you know, Dennis Leary, I went to college with, so, you know, I knew, but I remember we did a tour, uh, a remote control live tour. So it was like, you know, uh, so it started with Sandler would come out and do like uh, John Tenike, who was a writer on the show, come out and do like ten minutes. Then Sandler would do twenty, and then Quinn would do twenty, and then Kenny would do twenty, and then they would play some version of the game with a bunch of college kids live on tour. And every night, every night, Adam Sandler would kill, kill. Didn't matter what he did, the 
the, these were these were all college kids. It was culture. They went crazy for him, and it was like at that point, it was clear there was something going on with Adam Sandler. And this is for those you know, it's like when you're doing a stand-up show and at a comedy club or a group of comedians at a college or whatever wherever it is. If you're the opening act, you're not supposed to blow people off the stage. You're supposed to be the guy who sets up everybody. So when somebody does go does go on, and like I remember last comic standing, Ralphie May went on first and got like four standing ovations in five minutes. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be in a situation where you take people out of their game. So when that does happen, it's a it's a it, right. And sign. and you know, Quinn and Quinn and Sailor were close, so it didn't really unnerve Colin but Kenny who was the star of the show <laughs> I, I think it completely unnerved you know, you know Sandler was my find I went to uh, what was Tenkin's place um, uh, comic strip I went to the comic strip to see Richie, somebody else Richie Tenkin's place yeah. Richie, yeah I went to see somebody else showcase and Sandler gets on stage and he's got sweatpants on and a t-shirt and sneakers with no socks and he's still a student at NYU and he does, this. and it was also this was like at the time the Beastie Boys were, uh-huh. you know, just starting to, you know, get huge. And I thought he's 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 the, he's one of those guys. He's the he's the comedian Beastie Boy. Well, we is, should put him on MTV. This is what's amazing too is that you know when you look at if you're a performer out there, whatever you do, you're in a situation you, you never know who's watching. You never know who's going to be there. So a lot of times comedians, they go on places and they don't really, you know, they're like, eh, I'm just going to try out some stuff or I'm going to do whatever. You never know who's going to be Stephen there. Stephen Wright. That's right. And uh, we'll talk, you'll talk <laughs> about that too. So you're in a situation where you're going in, you're, you're there specifically to see a guy who's the favorite, the guy who's Tom Brady to Eli Manning. You don't even know the other guy. And the other guy gets the gig, and the guy you went to see—you don't even—you rem- can't even remember his fucking name. <laughs> I did. It, it, it was what was it was a female comic. Who was the woman who hosted on USA Up all night? Uh, oh, uh, the one with the the, the yeah, dress, it was her. That's was what I was going to see. Search, uh, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm going, so bad with names. Was it but, Rhonda something? Yeah, exactly. Rhonda Shear. Rhonda Shear. I was going to see Rhonda Shear, and and I and then I followed Sandler out to the bar. I gave him my business card. Called me the next day, came to see me. Then I sent him down to Joe Devola and Michael Duke and all these guys at Remote Control. He was, quote, Doug's friend for a while because they didn't know what to do with him. And then, you know, I think Quinn sort of vouched for him a little bit. Quinn knew him a little bit. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, that was Adam's first. He had done one. He had, he, uh, he had actually had a couple. He did a couple of episodes of Cosby as a friend of Theo's, Got where it. he was just one of the kids in the crowd. Got so it, it. wasn't, it wasn't his, his official debut, but uh, it's pretty close. He's still at NYU. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. it's just an, an incredible story. So I want you to tell me more about uh, the MTV stuff, because, you, you know, at the time, I believe... Uh, tell me about Mike Judge and how things got started there with that. Now, I, I know that... Yeah, you, I was not... You were not directly... Yeah, I was sort of like on the fringes there. Um, although like, somebody... A guy named Andy Schoen claims it was my idea uh, to do the to have them talk about videos, like because uh, it, it just well, started out as a short. I had heard it had been your idea, and I had heard it started out as a short. Which so many things, by the way, start out as, and we're going to talk about that with South Park. Right, is like you know, if you can make something, even if it's a minute long, that blows people the fuck away, you're going to get your shot. People are going to recognize it, and they're going to see it if it's extraordinary. So just well, Mike made this short film, which you know uh, Abby Turculi, who was running the on-air promo department at MTV, had seen it. I think at a film festival, 
and he fell in love with it and he brought it back and he showed it to us all. And then we actually took it out to focus groups and it was the first time in a focus group where after we showed something to these kids, kids were like, can I buy that? <laughs> like, I'll buy that right now. Uh, and so I think we were trying to sort of figure out what to do with it. And then we came up with this idea of having them sort of, you know, make fun of videos, uh, which was brilliant. But, uh, you know, Mike was, Mike, was, Mike was fantastic. And the show was fantastic. And it still makes me laugh. I love, for me, I always loved the, when they were talking about, over the videos better than anything. Because it was, you know, that's what we did all day at MTV anyway. We were just sitting at the TVs looking at these horrible videos. Some of the horrible, there were some great ones. But some of the cheesier ones and just making fun of them all day. And uh, it felt like, you know, they were, they were our, our subconscious or something. But, uh, you know, Mike was, Mike was awesome and, uh, and great to be around and did a great job. And was that your first time working with animation? Yeah, again, I was on the fringes of that, so I wasn't really involved in the day-to-day. But we, we hadn't really done, yeah, for me, truthfully. But you, all, have to, but you have to be the guy who says, let's continue this or let's get rid of this. Right, but it was clear it was working. <laughs> you know, uh, There's a lot of things that work sometimes that, look, Rob Schneider had a show on CBS that 13 million people were watching it and it got canceled. Meanwhile, while Whitney's show at four million, it got picked up. So it's like so. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, you know, you know, a lot, a lot of things come into play. No, South Park was resonating in a big way with the audience, and and Mike just had such a great voice, and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it, and it, it felt like the audience, and uh, and it, you know, like I said, it sort of resonates to a certain degree to this day. I think they're, I think they're kind of classic. So let's keep going here with the. Uh, this thing that happened that you were involved with, which was this award show phenomenon, right? The, this basically like in, inventing an award show. <laughs> we did that a couple times. <laughs> Tell me how that came about, and uh, and because you know back then there was just like you know, like the, the Emmys, the Academy Awards, and basically maybe the Country Music right. Awards, maybe maybe the Grammy. You know, so you were for cable. Well, I, I certainly did. I certainly didn't invent the Video Music Awards. That was actually created by. Don Olmeyer and Bob Pittman and the, the sort of the original MTV brass. I took the show over probably in 86 or so. And, you know, I, you know, I like to think I had a little bit to do with, you know, what it's sort of evolved into. Yeah. Although it, 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 there was a, there was a, they really got the whole thing started. The one I, I can really, you know, claim, you know, a, a lot more involvement is the movie awards where with the success of the video music awards, we're just sitting around going, what can we do next? And uh, I think Kenny Ehrlich actually brought us the idea for the movie. You awards. think people at ESPN are saying, hmm, "We have the ESPYS. What can we do next?" Yeah, exactly. They're good businesses, and you know, and you know, uh, explain why they are a good business to people who don't understand. Well, if they're, succe- if they're successful, pe- they're no, a good business. No, because people, you know, a lot of people might look at it and they might say, "Look, you know, this is just a once a year thing. Why is this such a..." Big business. Well, thing. if you make them successful, you know they turn into these. They're like tent poles. Yeah, you know, like tent pole movies, and they're the you know they're and advertisers love them. They're tremendous fun live events, and you're sure you've been, and uh, and they kind of build on themselves. You know, you know, BETs. You know, had a lot of success with theirs. Um, ESPN, obviously, uh, MTV. So you know, not everybody you know is as successful. And uh, we have certainly tried some others that weren't as successful, but you know they're which, they're, which, they're which were, oh God, um, well we've tried it at comedy a couple times, you know, and that's been tough. The um, bar mitzvah. Well, yeah, that was that. I was not. Uh, I was. I was not a comedy <laughs> at that time. 
<laughs> but that's that's a good indication of how things can go wrong. But you know, these the, the live events are fun. I mean, I have so many great memories from the Video Music Awards and the Movie Awards, and you know, these just great mishmashes of people and talent and things that happen. And you know, they're sort of a one night only type of type of approach, and uh, and they're a hell of a lot of fun. And you know, moving to the Comedy Central because I think you know this is a time where uh, when you got the Comedy Central the first time, right. Um, again, it was, I, I think you would, could be argued that it was similar to USA Today, except less viewers where there wasn't really... Nowhere to go but up. Nowhere to go but up. I like those opportunities. Uh, because it's, uh, and so you get there and firstly, I, I want you to tell the South Park story about how, again, people, artists out there who are listening, like... The great thing about YouTube and, and and what's happening now is that I always say, like, if you're an artist, it's it's like it's zero, zero. It's like nobody's going on The Tonight Show and saying, you know, hey, how you doing? My name is Bo Burnham. I hope you enjoyed my set. Uh, uh, I have a YouTube channel here you can go to. No, no one. So it's like America tells you what's happening. But back then, there wasn't that. And so basically, YouTube back then was you you were the guy and one of the big people who saw something got a got something uh i'm not gonna uh, ruin the story because i want you to tell well, the, it yeah so so the story is um uh it was made as a video christmas card uh brian uh graden uh who later actually sort of replaced me at mtv uh, was had a development pod at Fox, and he asked these guys who were working for him, these young guys, Matt and Trey, if they would... He had seen something they had done, an animated short they had done in college, uh, not too dissimilar. And he said, uh, can, you, can you turn that into a video Christmas card for me? Which they did, which was then sent out to all his friends as a Christmas card on VHS. And it kind of went... VHS on Christmas VHS. Card. And it kind of went viral in an, in an era before there was virals. People saw it went crazy for it and it would start making and copies people started duplicating so I duplicated VHS these VHS so that now it's getting passed around on VHS imagine that kids so it comes to the attention of Debbie Liebling who is running Comedy Central Development here in Century City Los Angeles and I'm out here and she says I gotta show you something and she pulls me into a conference room she puts the VHS in and she runs it she plays the Spirit of Christmas the now legendary Spirit of Christmas again a passionate executive who you know you talk about other executives who are listening here it's like you, you, you ask yourself how do you move up how do you move up to where you are how do you get to the next level and for Debbie how she got to the next level she took a risk she might have you know you know you might consider yourself very approachable but she's going in she's taking you in a conference room oh she was passionate about it there's no question about it so she showed it to me. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I still think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I watched it, and then I said to her, could you, could you play that again? And she played it again. And I said, again, wrongly, wrong again, I said, you know, I don't think we can put that on TV, but we should be in business with these guys. Now, I was wrong because we did put that on TV, and it, it, it succeeded wildly. And then Debbie, you know, I said, go get them. Let's, we got to do this. Like, we just have to do this. Now, did we know it was going to be as brilliant as it has remained? No. Did, Did we know it was going to be as successful as it became? No. We just knew it was really funny. It made us laugh. And there was no question that it was 
somewhat controversial and attention-getting, and we thought we could use a little bit of that at Comedy Central, a place that nobody was paying attention to. So th- at the very least, we thought, we'll get some attention with this. Got it. And so you do you have them shoot a pilot, and then you decide, or you just say, hey, let's go? They No, we had them shoot a pilot, which was the anal probe, the famous <laughs> anal probe episode. And famously, we did not love the pilot. We were a little disappointed. So you're sitting around a room in the cable uh, beating room, and you're looking at it, you're like, I don't like it. And are you are you saying, like, maybe we shouldn't put this on? No, we were just, we were we were going to put it on. I think we were like, wow, they, we think they could do better. Like, it just, it, something got lost in the translation. I remember they came to New York, and they, they had print, I wish I still had them. They had printed up, uh, I guess, where they went to school in Colorado, they graded their report cards like check, check plus, check minus. Like those are the grades you got. It wasn't A, B, C, D, F. And they came in with check minus t-shirts on. Uh, and so we sent it back and they kind of rejigged the pilot. Um, and it was better. And then that was that. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks of giving them notes, we also got the sense we should just get out of the way. Well, let's talk about that. Because <laughs> like, I, I want to talk about that. Because how many episodes in... Did you authorize? Because in 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 for those listening and watching in 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 network television, there's normally what's called a current executive. We, we had network. no such thing. We didn't have a standards department, by the way, at that right. point at Comedy Central. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I could just see you. Well, saying- we, you know, the truth is, we actually we actually said, you know what? When we put this on, we better have a standards person go out and find one. <laughs> so, you, so you opened up work for somebody. Yeah, we did. Um, so, you know, you're in a situation like that. Like, how do you, I'm, I'm just confused as like, I think, I think everybody should know, like, how do you get something that there's obviously a guy in an office with a better suit than you have looking down at you saying, Doug, what the fuck are you doing? Here? Well, that was the brilliance. Truthfully, at the time, Comedy Central was, was co-owned, was a co-venture between Time Warner and Viacom and more specifically HBO and MTV. So my bosses were Tom Freston, who was running MTV Networks at the time, and Jeff Bukas, who was, who was running HBO. They both had really big jobs and were really busy guys. And they, quite frankly, didn't have a lot of time to pay attention to a co-venture that wasn't making any money. So I, to a certain degree, I was left to my own devices. Now, I showed this thing to them. They both kind of looked at me a little cross-eyed at the time. But neither guy was going to try and step on the other guy's toes and say no. And I'm not sure they would have necessarily. So having two bosses meant sort of like having no bosses. And so we were left to our own devices. And that's how South Park happens. Because nobody says no. So at what point, what episode in do you tell your executives, let them go? Don't, it don't was it was it was probably near the end. I mean, it took off so fast and like a like a house on fire, and they 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 were feeling their oats pretty quickly. And you know, how soon before the renegotiation call? It was pretty quick. It really was first uh, season. We were paying them nothing first season. I think probably before the end of the first season. I, I, you'd have to check with Kevin Morris. I'm sure he remembers, but it, it happened pretty quickly because again, we were paying them nothing because <laughs> they were just two guys from Colorado, and then the thing took off like a house on fire. You know, and our notes, you know, were mostly standards issues over time. We were never like, that's not funny. Although I am, again, here I am, the idiot, uh, early on, I, I think even actually during the pitch phase, they're like, so we're going to kill Kenny every week. And I was like, wait, that's not funny. 
Like, <laughs> like people aren't going to like that. Like, that's not funny, right? And they're looking at me like I have three heads, and I'm like, I'll just be quiet and let them kill Kenny every week because they know better than me, and they did. But uh, I think one of the I think one of the universal things of a great president of a network is you know with talented artists is is many of them would say, and I know Michael Wright. When I talked to him last, he said, you know, the the key is just to get out of the way. Mostly. I mean, yeah, I learned that quickly. And and, and Matt and Trey uh, were sort of instructive in that regard because they had such a finely honed point of view. And and I, I, I was able to get my little pea brain, get get it wrapped around that pretty quickly. I was like, these guys know what they do and they know what they want to do. Um, we just need to get out of the way and let them do their thing. And so animation, a lot of people don't understand this, but this has been a, a you know a big part of your career. Even though you don't, you weren't around for the beginnings of Beavis and Butthead, you were around for their success and you were supporting it. You have South Park, and also people forget about the Family Guy. Yeah, I stepped in. You know, look, the truth is, I just I happened to start at Fox the same week Family Guy premiered. Um, I'm also responsible probably for it not being as successful as it should have been <laughs> early on. Uh, and, you know, Seth has been very gracious to me over the years, I'll tell you that, in, in all his success. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I did not, uh, you know, I had so many other problems at Fox. Family Guy was the pimple on the ass of my problems, and I didn't pay enough attention to it and certainly didn't look out for it, I think, the way I should have or could have at the time. And, well, and, how, it, and, but, it's, and it succeeded despite me. But how do you... Well, that's great things normally do succeed despite <laughs> me. negativity. Not you. <laughs> Not you. So, but that's interesting about South Park So, and, and, and Family Guy. But getting back to Family Guy, like you had that on at 9.30 on a Thursday, but you had your animation block you know, on, on Sunday on Fox. What was the reason why it, it was left alone out there? No, no, but you have almost. But you're, you're in a 12, room with. 13, 14 years ago. I but you're in a room with a bunch of executives. I'm trying to remember. Schedule. So Sunday nights were probably King of the Hill, Simpsons. And what came on after the I'm trying to remember what we had on Sunday nights after the Simpsons then. Uh, if you don't know, I'm not going to be I, able to help you. I, I have no idea. Right. I have no idea. But, you know, Family Guy, you know, in retrospect, I was wrong about it. I was not a gigantic fan of it coming out of the box, but I was a little, had my nose up in the air. I was the South Park guy. You know, it's like oh, people, people, people at Fox would go, we think this could be the next South Park. And I go, really? <laughs> you know, I mean, so, you know, and. You know, ta-da, wrong again. <laughs> so, but that's okay. You but, you know, like look, I said, Seth, 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 Seth has been enormously gracious over the years. But I did I did not look out for it early on like I think I could have. So it left the were – you, were you stunned when it came back? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. More so because it kicks my ass every day, uh, you know, uh, over at TNT, TBS, and Adult Swim. Every day. It's just always there to remind me, hey, dude, you're wrong. And you'll be wrong again. And, you know, and, you know, I've actually gotten to know Seth a little better over the years. He's hosted some roast first. And like I said, he's been enormously, uh, but I don't think he was that uh, fond of me back then necessarily. Well, let's talk about, you talked about the roast. And this is something that I want to talk about because I, I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, I feel like, uh, you know, Six degrees of separation with the roast because I remember I came over to visit you early on with uh, Jeff Ross, Freddie Roman, and Jean Pierre, and Friars. The Friars. Before I really knew anything about producing or anything about what I could do to help move a needle forward, probably at the time. 
and uh, met with you with these old guys and thinking, you know, this would be a great thing for uh, the network, whatever. They ended up uh, twisting you into a balloon animal doing a deal. <laughs> you finally put it on, but you, but you, you took a risk again and you put the first roast on Comedy Central with Drew Carey and with all of the elder statesmen of the Friars Club in New York. Tell us about the beginnings of that and, 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 and why, after a couple of years, you decided to experiment and you did Dennis Leary, produced one of them, and then you went to uh, Joel Galwin and, and did it a different way. Tell me the progression of that. Because I want before you say that, I, I, I want to say one thing about you that people don't understand. You're, you're one of the few people in this business that breaks stars. And so if you look at out there, there's very few ways to break a new star. And the roast has become literally, uh, with no disrespect to Lauren Michaels, who I think is just, you know, 40 years is just an incredible thing. But you've taken a roast that goes on once or twice a year. And through that, you're breaking stars or giving young people a chance to break and then creating situations where they have their own shows, hopefully on your network, sometimes not on your network. No, it's been a great, great springboard for a lot of, uh, you know, Jeff, Whitney, Geraldo, now Anthony and Amy. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. But the, the, the origin was, goes back to your, your question about the live events and MTV. I felt comedy needed its own night and its own live event. I didn't think the world was ready for a comedy award show. Apparently still isn't. <laughs> And I always loved the Dean Martin roasts growing up. And I used to go to the Friars roasts, uh, the luncheons, uh, when I lived in New York. And I loved those, too. And so I wanted to find a way to do a roast on Comedy Central. And and uh, and then Comedy Central was also so fledgling at the time. I didn't think anybody would do a roast for Comedy Central. So I thought we needed a partner. And so that's so I thought the Friars Club, you know, because so at the end of the day, the hardest part about doing the roast is finding somebody to sit there and to take all that abuse for 90 minutes. And no one was doing it because they loved Comedy Central. People will do it for different reasons, but they might do it for the Friars because there's there's a real tradition, and that's that's what that's what led us to the Friars. And one of the things about these roasts, if you've ever been to a taping of the roast, it's it's fascinating in the sense that uh, I, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Out of a hundred percent of the content that night, probably seventy percent or sixty percent is is a lot of bombing, a lot of people doing poorly. I mean, you could even have uh, the greatest comedian in the world go on and be prepared and ready and literally like maybe three or four minutes of what he does, ten minutes does well. But in editing, when you cut it down, it looks like they're all killing. Yeah. But a lot of times on those nights, what's shocking about these things, these kind of award, they're not an award show, but these kind of events, it's one of the few events in the history of television where if you were actually to watch the entire taping, you would be like, how did this ever get on the air? Because there's just so much that doesn't do well, but yet the way it's creatively structured and edited, it, it's, it's amazing how it comes out. And people are always asking, like, what did you leave on the cutting room floor and what don't you wear and what's too dirty to wear? I said, nothing's, we, the, the, our, our filter is funny, not funny. And if it's funny, no matter how filthy or awful it is, we try and get it in the show. Now, 
there are occasions where people cross a line where we're not willing to cross and we leave those things out, but it's, it, it's pretty rare. And we, 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 if it's funny, we try and leave it in there. So, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, Craig Kilborn, John Stewart. Now you want me to tell my story? Yes. I've been waiting since you've asked me yes. to do this. So I was very angry with you years ago because there was a, we were doing uh, Craig Kilborn had been hired to do the daily show by myself. And uh, now, tell me who the people were in the running for the Daily Show besides Craig. Who were the choices? Oh, there, there was a guy. I'm going to remember. I'm going to forget his name now. He actually hosts the weekend edition of Good Morning America, and I can't remember his name. He's from Chicago. He was a newscaster. Bill, uh, I can't remember. So I uncovered him somehow. There were a couple other people who came in an audition, but there weren't a lot of serious contenders. I had landed on Craig pretty he, quick. He, he was uh, a star on Sports Center. He was on Sports. He was doing late night Sports Center. I had caught him a couple times. I thought he had kind of a Dennis Millery, you know, uh, um, uh, delivery. I was on the phone with uh, Jeff Jacobs at CAA. Happened to mention. I didn't even know his name. I was like that guy on ESPN. Sounds like Dennis Millery. Goes Craig Kilborn. He's a client, and literally. Ten minutes later, Jeff they, Jacobs they, they, they brought the, him down. Jeff Jacobs, by the way, is a packaging television packaging agent at CAA, one of the best in the business, and uh, he was representing. Uh, they, 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 so ten minutes later, he's in my office. I have a meeting with Madeline Smithberg and Eileen Katz, and myself and Madeline's partner at the time, who helped her start the Daily Show, whose name is escaping me, Liz Winston. No, not Liz. It's pre Liz. Pre Liz. Liz was on. Liz was on the writing staff, but uh, Madeline had another partner. I'm. I'm. I should not forget her name. Anyway, so it was a room full of four women and me, and Craig Kilborn. He comes in and he says, uh, "Didn't some of you guys work at MTV?" And so Eileen and I raise our hands. He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "You know uh, downtown Julie Brown?" And we go, "Yeah." He goes, "Cause I love the brown sugar." <laughs> and I thought all the women in the room were going to leap over the table. And I think actually Liz was in the room. And gonna and they hated him. But by the end of the meeting, he had kind of turned the whole thing around and got the meeting out of his hand. And Madeline was like, we should do it with this guy. Let's go. Now, cut to we are doing a, we are doing a test run uh, before we went, like the week before we went on the air. So we're down on the set. And uh, Craig's running through the show, and his guest for the night, his test guest, is Jeff Ross. And uh, he kind of, you know, it's not a, it's this is not a good rehearsal, this is not a good run through, and it's not a good interview. And you pull me aside and you say, "He is ruining comedy." <laughs> <laughs> and I was very angry with you, Barry, because I'm like, I'm like five minutes from putting this thing on the air, and now you've just told me he's going to bring comedy down single-handedly. Now, I just want to share something at the time. <laughs> Do you I remember was, this at all? I, yes. I was, okay. I was, I was Fair enough, then. I was, I was representing Jeff Ross at the time. <laughs> yes, you were. Who I probably represented three times in my life. Uh, and um, this is the way I remember it. You pulled me aside, and you said... I'm killing comedy. No. no you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was what Seth MacFarlane said. No. <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. No, so you pulled me aside, and I, I was, I was so flattered. You took me aside, and you said, "Barry, tell me honestly, what do you think about this guy? Tell me honestly. I trust you, or whatever, something like that." I'm paraphrasing. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, this guy is a Sports Center guy. He's funny on Sports Center because there isn't anybody really that funny on Sports Center. 
but you're putting him in a situation where you're making him in the chair, it's his show, and you're asking him to have the skills of being funny and being somebody who's a front man for hosting a show like this, and I don't think he has this ch those chops, and I think he's killing comedy here. I didn't take that well. I, ne I never, I never, this is the first time I've known. I was, I was very angry about that for a while. The first time I've known you were, yeah, you were mad at me. I was, I was very angry about that. Anyways, we put, we did put Craig on and he succeeded in his own way doing, you know, a very different show than the show John Stewart does today, uh, for a while. And then that whole thing blew up. Why did it blow up? Because Jeff Jacobs got him, got him the slot after David Letterman, and uh, that's a whole other that was a whole other story. But I was very blindsided by that. But here's another. But here's another situation here. This is fascinating because I think this is amazing. So just to let everybody know here, so he's calling Jeff Jacobs. Craig Kilborn isn't you know he's doing uh, on ESPN. They were paying the guys like nothing. literally nothing. Okay. You call Jeff Jacobs, you give Jeff Jacobs a chance to get his client a gig, he starts getting paid, it's his own show, and then two and a half years later, the guy who you align with, you're like, hey buddy, we did this, we got this guy going, he pulls him out to do a better opportunity. Now at the time, again... One of the lowest moments, probably uh, that's right, in that's your right. career. That's right. And I just want to share. I just want to share with you, everybody out there, how a devastating event can turn around and be one of the greatest moments of a person's career. And that certainly was for John Stewart. Certainly was for John Stewart. And yeah. So John, was. John, John was not necessarily. I mean, he was on our radar always. I mean, I, you know, we, we go back. I go back to MTV with John. He John was I think he had his own show on MTV that you I think were well, around he, he, with, and uh, Howard Feller was the co-host. Uh, that's right, Howard Feller. Right? Yes, but he, but he had a show before that called You Wrote It, You Watch that's It. That's right. And then we did the John Stewart show, and then he went to syndication, and then that ended. And then he he was out here for a minute in L.A. He was he did a he did the final season of Larry Sanders. Remember there was all that. Maybe he's going to replace. Maybe HBO is going to continue the show with John Stewart as Larry Sanders. He also, the, right, he also got a huge deal uh, at CBS, at CBS, and at Miramax, I believe, for films. Right. So, so he was also sort of heir apparent to Letterman, and you know he was hot, right? Even though he wasn't really working, <laughs> he was hot. And I knew John, and I knew him pretty well. And my instinct was, well, he's never, he's not coming to Comedy Central to take. Craig Kilborn's old job and that's so I, I didn't really reach out so we talked to a lot of people and we were talking to a lot of people about a lot of different people and different opportunities and then one day I was talking with Jimmy Miller who said Jimmy Miller being a manager of uh, Jim Carrey at the time with right. Eric Gold and also John Stewart yeah and he said you should talk to John I think he might be interested I'm like really he's like yeah you should go you should go talk to him and uh, Eileen Katz and Madeline Smithberg and I uh, took John out for lunch. And, you know, we, we'd all work with him, you know, previously at MTV, go all the way back. And it sounded like he might want to do this. And we literally, we left the restaurant, took a cab to James Dixon's office. John's James longtime agent, now manager. Yep, James Dixon was one of the greatest uh, agents in the business. He had packaged uh, Everybody Loves Ray Raymond, Romano, uh, the, Kevin James, Kevin James Roger Cabler's guy. Roger Cabler. He, was, he had Rhythm Leary at the time. Leary. Corolla, um, Kimmel, John Stewart, yeah. Stephen Colbert. Amazing, and it's what, good to be what, James Dixon. what James Dixon did, you know, as a as a representative, as he moved into, uh, he's now what I like to call a magent. He's part agent, part 
uh, manager, and uh, we'll we'll have him. On, we're going to be having him on the show as well. Got to have baby doll on. Yeah, he's going to be he's going to be on. <laughs> um, but he was in, unique in that he he figured out that it was beneficial to represent guys who were hosts more than those that were on television. That's why now John Stewart and Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla that and way Colbert but, and Colbert. But keep going. So anyway, so we drove. We went straight to his office. Went straight to the William Morris offices. You know, up on Sixth Avenue, and walked ourselves right up to his office. Said, well, "Let's do it, John Stewart. Let's make this happen." And so, do you do a pilot, or you just bring them? Oh in? no, he just no. That was just it. goes so, right. So, in. so was, how's the transition this was, work? This was, this was probably I want to say it was probably August. Because I think this is important. Because like on Saturday Night Live, the transition from Norm Macdonald to Colin Quinn, you just got back after the holiday, he, and he, literally, you this, know, well, the same thing happened. So this was August. Um, uh, you know, from a timeline standpoint, you know, I, I get the call from from uh, Peter Chern in September. But you know we we you know we pretty much agree to John pretty quickly. But he's not going to start till January. I have Kilborn through the end of the year. I ain't letting him go, which was uh, much to Les Moonves's chagrin uh, until I was set on my side. So Craig worked through the end of December. We took the Christmas break. I subsequently left Comedy Central. John Stewart started at the Daily Show the same day I started at Fox. Uh, he did a lot better. <laughs> he's, still, <laughs> he, he's still there. Low these many years later. And, you know, what's it like to get into a battle with somebody like Les Moonbez over talent? You have the contract. You can be a knight. Because this is interesting because I think it's important because uh, uh, it's a similar story with uh, Key and Peele, uh, who uh, is a show uh, that uh, seems to be doing quite nicely <laughs> for you. Um Jordan was telling me the story of how um, he tested for, I'm sorry, yeah, he tested for Saturday Night Live because he only had four episodes left on MT, on, on Mad, Mad TV, TV and, it, and it was going out of business, you know, it was over. And so he thought, I'll test for SNL. It's no way David Salzman will keep me in this thing. He tests for SNL, and again, what happens is, is that David Salzman decides, hey, no, you have to do your four episodes. I'm holding you to your four episodes. And so Jordan lost Saturday Night Live, but again, one of the biggest disappointments turns out to be one of the greatest successes against the Tide. All worked out for him, I think. It all worked out. Yeah. So here, again, you're going toe-to-toe with Les Moonves. He wants you to let him out. You don't want to let him out. I'm not going to let him out because I didn't have another idea originally. So this probably happened in the spring of whatever that was, 98, and... What really made us angry was Les was going to bring him to their upfront presentation in May. He's still working for me or for us, and I still haven't figured out what I'm going to do, and that made us crazy. So we went to court over that, and at the very, literally at the last minute, we got him turned away from the CBS upfront, which I think you know, made Les unhappy at the time. Do you but find- Les, I, I also like to think Les would have done the same thing. He would have. <laughs> do, you, do you find that when you... You remember the next time you ran into Les? Did he give you the cold shoulder, or he was did. it he, he gave did. you the cold? And shoulder? I get it. You know, I you know, I uh, you know, I I I push back, and I get it. Uh, over time, you know, for a minute there, we were in the same company uh, when CBS uh, and MTV Networks, were, and we've got we've certainly got to know each other a little better over there. I actually knew Les, you know, you know, a little bit then. Um, no, he's uh, he's uh, you know. I get it, and and you know uh, we 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 we've uh, it's thought you know we we work in different um, uh, universes. Less is the 
is the crown champion of broadcast television, and I'm just a cable guy. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't travel as orbit, but he's 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 always been very gracious to me over the years. Well, what I love about you is your humility, because uh, <laughs> you're far from just a cable guy. So we're sort of uh, coming into the home stretch here. Uh, one of the things, big finish, Barry. Big finish. One of the things, you know, uh, having uh, represented Chappelle for eight years, uh, um, um, I. Uh, from when he was 18 to probably 26, you know, having a chance to work with him uh, was one of the greatest for me. Uh, I think we have different kind of uh, things that happened. It was for me, it was just amazing in the sense that I was watching a young man, bec- a young boy or a grown up boy or whatever, become a man in front of me, book $400 million movies and just start to sort of take off. And, and, but always, kept that kind of like weird thing where he would I don't know I wasn't with him but the illusion was in my mind although I never saw him that he was like you know waking up at the crack of noon smoking a bag of weed a day and then that red light that's what I do (laughs) Uh, I'll see you at the trial Um, (laughs) and then that red light would go on the camera and I, I mean, he was a genius. I mean, it was just... It Still was is. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I, the greatest moments of my life were during that time. And I just want to share something uh, with you. Uh, I I had uh, an impromptu, I guess you'd call it a lunch or a sit-down at Real Food Daily with him about maybe nine months ago. And uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story what we talked about, but... At the end of the meeting, I, I said to him, uh, listen, um, I have to share something with you that I never told you. And I, I'm, I'm sorry I never told you, but I never told you. And he said, what is it? I said, well, about five years ago or three years ago, whenever it was, I can't remember the time, but I got a call from Doug Herzog. And he calls me up, and it's like right after you left the Chappelle show and... um you know, things were a little dicey. And Doug says to me, uh, listen, can you get uh, Dave in my office? I said, sure, I think I could get him in the office. I don't see why I couldn't. He says, good, because I got my feet up on my desk here, Barry, and at the end of my desk is a paperweight with a check underneath it made out to Pilot Boy Productions, which was his uh, company. And it's made out for $27 million, and I'd like him to come here and pick up this check. And I said to you, listen, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get him to come to your office. And you started yelling at me, what the fuck are you talking about? Why aren't you going to get him in my office? I mean, I don't understand. It's a check. Get him here. I said, I can't get him there because if he takes that check and he cashes it, you'll own him. And he doesn't want that. He wants control. And I told Dave, I said, and he yells into the phone again, but it's a check for $27 million. And after I said that, it's Real Food Daily, you know, it's like I'm telling a story and he leans into me and he looks me in the eyes and he says, that sounds a little light. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's why he's a genius. That's why he's a genius. So take me through the... the, the well, we don't have all day. We don't have all day. Just 
You know, I just did this today with the guy who's writing that. Uh, he said he spoke to you, the guy who's writing the, the uh, Kindle uh, yeah. uh, uh, mini book. But you know that we don't have all day. We don't have all day. This is an all day discussion. <laughs> it doesn't have to be all day. Let's just talk about um, green lighting the show. That, that, okay, so that, that all happened without me. So the Chappelle show, when I, I returned to Comedy Central in May of 2004, the second season of Chappelle had just ended. Got so it. he was, he had become the Jesus of comedy. There was nobody bigger, nobody more exciting, nobody hotter, and he did not have a contract. So I arrive at Comedy Central, and the only thing this is what's I can weir- think about is I have to And this is what's weird. Back then, whoever was in charge did one of the most unprecedented things that I've ever heard of. They only did a two-year two contract. Deal. Right. With Dave Chappelle. There's no deal so he's in the free, history he's... of show business for television that I've ever known in my life that is two years. It's normally five, five and a half, six, six and a half. Saturday Night Live is an eight-year deal. Eight years with films. So Dave does a two-year deal and knocks it out of the park. And now he's a free agent and I'm the guy who's got to re-sign him. So I back up the money truck. Which we did. Who authorizes you to back up the money truck? Well, you know, Tom Freston and Judy McGrath were, you know, sort of my bosses. But you don't sit down and say, okay, let's see, how are we going to say, uh, 50 million? Let's get them 50. Well, the 50 million figure. It was a DVD figure. Yeah, you know, we actually thought, you know, it was going to end up to be around 35. His agents, I think, are the ones who came up with the 50 figure. By the way, it could have been 100. Depending on how many DVDs he sold, this was at the height of the DVD era. They were flying off the shelves. He but was at the time, ever. he sold more DVDs, and I think it's still to this day, than any television show yeah. in the history of the world. He crushed more, all the more records. Than, more than The Simpsons. He did, at, at the time of the negotiation, he was at $6 million, and I think The Simpsons was at $5 million. So we, so we did the, so we, you know, after, you know, we did a deal, and that didn't take, you know, it was a couple of months, you know, me and Martin Lisak and Mustafa and those guys, and... You know, we we like I said, we you know, we you know, we 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 broke a lot of precedents. We put a lot of money on the table, but we were this is something we wanted to do, and uh, and so we signed it back up, and then everything went bad. <laughs> you know, so. But you know, I always think of you as an artist friendly guy. It was and, a very difficult. And you're the kind of guy who always. I mean, I, I've I've known you to get mad at me, <laughs> but I and I've known you to yell at me. <laughs> But I'm not a yeller. That's, you're not that's, a yeller, but you have yelled at me a few times. And say, but but I, I don't. You, but, you, you must have been deserving of it. You of, told me. You told course. me I was the enemy of comedy. For Christ's I did sake, not Harry. say enemy of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, but I could probably count the times I've yelled at one hand. Maybe three of them are you. I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you, this was a very difficult thing because I do like to think of myself as artist friendly. And this, this, um, because again, it's another, I, 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 I don't I, mean to point this out, but it's another failure that happened, you know, and then you look at all the things that came about from that thing that, that are on the air now. It's just extraordinary. So I, I just, again, again, the, the, one, one, one of your line, biggest disappointments that, again, yeah, and huge then, disappointment. Because you're, you know, here you are, you get, you know, the biggest show on your network, biggest show on probably any network, and you can't, I can't get him to come to work. Can't get him to come to work. <laughs> so, and he's not Charlie Sheen. Without, go, without going into all the details, and that's probably a separate show or a separate podcast, at the end of the day, I, I don't think he was ever coming back. I think he didn't want to come back. So, And for, we could talk 
for hours and days about the reasons and everything behind that. But I think he was like, I'm not doing this. And there were a lot, there were a lot of reasons. Um, and if I could do it all over again, I don't think I would have been se- successful in bringing him back. Cause I don't think he was ever coming back. I think that's ultimately the decision he was going to make either way. I just wish in certain regards, you know, if I had to go back and redo some things in terms of how I was dealing with him or how we were dealing with him, maybe a little differently, but I don't think there would have been a different result. And I think what's really extraordinary about uh, Dave as an artist on the other side of the spectrum, the business side, is that anybody listening there or watching, there isn't any artist that I know of in my entire career that would turn down $50 million dollars. There isn't anyone I know that would walk away from that. And and to me, that's the power of somebody who is, you might power, say. Power of no. The power of no. Power of no. And the power of no. Every time you say no, you think, okay, what's going to happen? Well, you normally get what you want and you retain control. And again, uh, Steve Jobs said it best, you know, who wants to be the richest guy in the cemetery? Right. And and he knows and he knew that he could do anything he wanted and make what he wanted. And he didn't need that kind right. of money. I, look, I completely respect what he did. And, you know, you know I'd, I'd love to work with Dave someday. I'd love to have him on Comedy Central. I'd love to see Dave sometime. Completely respect, respect what he did. I wasn't that happy about it at the time. Trying to, trying to run a business, you know, and trying to get things done. I was spending money. I was paying him. And, you know, I was trying to get him to come to work. And, and there uh, were a lot of people that, that you know, that... that that loved the show. A lot of people were inspired by the show. A lot of people worked on the show, including Neil Brennan. Neil who, Brennan, one of the funniest guys out there. Who was, uh, you know, started, they, they met at my comedy club uh, when Neil was doing The Door and Dave was a young comic. So they're, it's they're, like, They were quite a tandem. So this is definitely wrapping up here. I, I want to I talk about some holy shit moments for you. That, uh, that uh, Other than sitting here for the first Barry Katz podcast? Other than that. <laughs> So I want you to have a true serum in your veins right now, if, you, if you'll oblige me. All right. All right. What's your proudest moment professionally? Professionally? I'm going to go with Daily Show. You know, uh, you know, that was something that, you know, I came to Comedy Central. I was immediately notified Bill Maher was leaving, and I figured we have a year to do something else. I, I wanted to do a nightly talk show. I wanted, I'm sorry, I wanted to do a nightly show that was part weekend update. I used to describe it as part weekend update, part today show, part Howard Stern. And, you know, the format that, you know, I kind of, in my head was, we're going to do headlines, we're going to have a guest, and then we're going to do a tape piece. And that's how we're going to be able to afford this. And, you know... What episode the, did you get out of the way of that show? Not for a long time. And I was really, you know, with, on the Craig Kilborn show, uh, you know, with Madeline and, and, uh, and Liz, very involved, very hands-on every day, reading scripts every day, doing notes every day. And, you know, they, look, they, they, they were down there hammering nails and, and putting the screws in. But, you know, myself and Eileen Katz, um, were, you know, extremely hands-on in that process. And that was just a great, gratifying thing to kind of build that, put it up, have it kind of stick, and then ultimately, you know, watch John Stewart you know, who completely took it to a completely other level. But, you know, John, you know what John Stewart ensured is that show's going to be around forever. And, and what is it uh, now? I'm not sure Craig Kilborn was going to do that. What is it now? 10 Emmys in 13 years? Something or? like that. Something crazy. Old John. It's like know. the it's like the Bill Russell of... Yeah, exactly. Uh, of, Old John. Of, that's exactly. John, player coach, you know? Same, same kind of guy. What's your biggest disappointment in your professional life? Uh, Probably... 
you know, probably Fox, just like the one thing I, I, I can't look back on and go say I knocked it. But, you know, I've had the, you know, I've, I've been enormously fortunate um, uh, to have a, a pretty good run to date, knock on wood. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, that, that, that was, you know, that was probably the toughest thing. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot of shows you fall in love with and a lot of people you fall in love with. And if it doesn't work out, sometimes those can, those, those are, those are big, dis- they seem like very big disappointments at the time. Um, and then you find a way to move on and the Fox thing, you know, is in the long in the rear view mirror. So I've been lucky enough not to have a ton of regrets in that regard. Well, what I find, Chappelle is one of them. Yeah. You know, what I find fascinating about you is that, uh, and, it's a lot of people don't understand it or they don't know how difficult it is when you're president of a network is that there's people who are executives that are with you for a long time and you believe in them and you love them and you, you help them grow and you inspire them. And like artists, sometimes they take the coaching and they move to the next level. Um, and sometimes they don't and they fall off and you have to make tough decisions. And one of the things that I've always had so much respect about you is because I think some of your biggest professional disappointments in my mind are the ones that are unspoken, the ones that are the throughout the years of the executives that you you held in high esteem and you tried so hard to to get them to the next level to where they wanted to be, you supported them and some didn't take the coaching sort of like Phil Jackson, you know, sometimes, you know, he couldn't coach Shaq or Kobe and sometimes he could. And, and that to me is what people don't realize how difficult it is as an executive and the things that you have to go through. Well, I take that stuff seriously. You know, I love, I, I really love managing people. You know, my kids ask me all the time, like, what do you do, dad? And I'm not really the guy who just sits in behind a desk going, you know, yes to that show, no to that show. I'm part of that process, but there's a lot of people responsible, you know, on the line for that day in and day out. You know, what I really do is I manage people and processes, and I really take managing people seriously, and I really like it. And so, yeah, when it, when you can't get there sometimes with somebody, that's, you know, that's disappointing. Yeah, and so last thing, I promise, um, I'd like to hear your advice for an artist, a comedy artist, a creator, anybody out there of how to stay the course and break through and be the kind of artist that can have their own show on your network or somebody who's going to move the needle. And I'd love you to tell me the same thing you would recommend for a young executive starting in our business. Well, I think for, you know, I think there's so many opportunities for, you know, young people to express themselves these days. And, you know, when we were coming through, you know, I had to go to Emerson college just to get my hands on a camera. Right. There were, you know, now everybody's got one in their back pocket. So I, I think you just you do it. There's no reason not to be doing it every day and to be creating and to be putting it out there and taking your chances. And if nobody pays attention, nobody pays attention. Stay at it. You haven't lost anything. But, you know, anybody, any young person who comes into my office these days and wants to be in this business and if they're not out there doing something at this point, what do you I, I look at them cry like. Get out of my office. <laughs> like, there's no excuse for not to be writing, producing. You can do it all. It's, you can do it all on your iPhone. Like, figure it out. Go for it. If you really want it, go for it. It ain't coming to you. You got to go to it. Go get it, you know? 
So I, I think that also pertains to people who want to be on the executive side uh, or on you know or but on they, the business side. But, but they can't, you know. No, they have to. They have to. They, they have to make their way into uh, into an organization, and that's 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 you. You know, you still have to enter the institution. So how does somebody? How does a young person get the attention? Enter the institution. How do, you, how, do, you, how, how do people get your attention? You, you got to be a little relentless. You have to be a little bit of a pain in the ass. You have to not be willing to go away. And you just got to keep at it. And, you know, ultimately, hopefully somebody will say yes and you'll get your chance, get your foot in the door, and then it's up to you. But people who kind of go out of their way, it's probably a bad thing to say on a podcast, but, you know, people who go out of their way to get to me, I always try and figure out a way to spend a little time with them because I feel like, you know, this person made a real effort and they found their way to me somehow by hook or by crook. And I respect that. And, you know, I'll give them the benefit of whatever you know whatever it is five minutes 10 minutes 20 minutes half hour you know whatever i can figure out return an email you know just because i feel like uh you know those who make their way in sort of a good organic way not you know uh, i'm not talking about like everybody who's like sending me a link to their show online but like young kids who you know you know who don't really have the wherewithal yet if they find their figure out a way to find their way to me i'm always trying to spend a little time with them so there you go it's persistence Persistence. It's just showing up, Barry, right? Look at us. We've been, <laughs> just been showing up for 35 years. Is it that long? We're sitting 24 floors above Century City. Pretty nice. The Barry Katz podcast has one of the great backdrops of, of any podcast, I, I imagine. You, we're going to need to take well, How would TV. you know? You've only done one. <laughs> we're going to need to take a go. Well, I hear about Marin's Garage and Jay Moore's Garage. I go, this beats a garage. Well, There's no smelly it. cats running around. <laughs> well, well you, uh, we'll take it to TV, maybe. Congratulations, Barry. I'm, ver- I'm very you. humbled and honored to be your first guest. Well, I am honored that you came on. Thank you for coming here. And um, listen, it's been so amazing, and people are going to be really inspired by this. And I really, really appreciate you. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. And for everybody watching and listening, listen, if you like this podcast, uh, tell all your friends. And if you don't like this podcast, tell all your friends. (laughs) This is the industry standard. Take care. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.